0: The Euxine Sea, as it is called, is self-contradictory in its nature, and deceptive in its name. As you would not account it hospitable from its situation, so is it severed from our more civilized waters by a certain stigma which attaches to its barbarous character. The fiercest nations inhabit it, if indeed it can be called habitation, when life is passed in wagons. They have no fixed abode, their life has no germ of civilization, They indulge their libidinous desires without restraint, and for the most part, naked. Moreover, when they gratify secret lust, they hang up their quivers on their car yokes to warn off the curious and rash observer. Thus, without a blush, do they prostitute their weapons of war. The dead bodies of their parents they cut up with their sheep and devour at their feasts. They who have not died so as to become food for others are thought to have died in a cursed death. Their women are not by their sex softened to modesty. They uncover the breast, from which they suspend their battle axes and prefer warfare to marriage. In their climate too, there is the same rude nature. The daytime is never clear, the sun never cheerful, the sky is uniformly cloudy. The whole year is wintry. The only wind that blows is the angry north. Waters melt only by fires. Their rivers flow not by reason of the ice. Their mountains are covered with heaps of snow. All things are torpid, all stiff with cold. Nothing there has the glow of life, but that ferocity which has given to scenic plays their stories of the sacrifices of the Taurians and the loaves of the Kalkians and the torments of the Caucasus. Nothing, however, in Pontus is so barbarous and sad as the fact that Marcion was born there. Fouler than any Scythian, more roving than the wagon life of the Sarmatian, more inhuman than the Massagete, more audacious than an Amazon, darker than the cloud. Of Pontus, colder than its winter, more brittle than its ice, more deceitful than the Ister, more craggy than Caucasus. Nay, more The true Prometheus, almighty God, is mangled by Marcion's blasphemies. Marcion is more savage than even the beasts of that barbarous region. For what beaver was ever a greater emasculator than he who has abolished the nuptial bond? What pontic mouse ever had such gnawing powers as he who has gnawed the gospels to pieces? Verily, O Euxine, thou hast produced a monster, more credible to philosophers than to christians an excerpt from against marcion by tertullian welcome once again to who let the dogma out where doctrine has dominion over all of life i'm one of your hosts daniel mayfield joined by jack wilkie and jacob rutledge
1: gentlemen how are we doing today Doing great. I wish uh, Tertullian would let us know how he really feels. Yeah, no kidding.
2: Uh, I had not heard that. that was
0: so brutal. Was, well, I, I read that and I was like, that's it. That is it. Because it doesn't give a lot of context. We're going to talk in a moment about who in the world is Marcion, because a lot of listeners are probably wondering who's Marcion. But um, I just wanted that full blast um, review of Marcion to be given first, which is by the, uh, the early Christian – church father, apologist, Tertullian. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, the more important subject matter. Uh, Jack, you're in a big transition right now out of Texas over to uh, <clears throat> the land that flows with milk and honey. So I've heard. Um, what do you, I, I know you're tired. What are you drinking this morning?
2: Well, I'm at the in-laws. And so it's it's their brew. Uh, sometimes they do mm. Starbucks. Sometimes it's uh, Folgers. So I'm not sure. It's not bad. Uh, it's Okay, it's waking me up. That's the important thing. Uh, it's it's been something like a thousand miles in the last week. So, uh, and and all in small chunks. A thousand miles ago, that's not that bad. No, but it is when you're doing this, that, then back, back and forth. And so, yeah, the coffee is a huge boost. So I'll, I'll take it, whatever yeah. it is. How many oh, sardines yeah. are yep. in your cup today?
0: Oh well, today <clears throat> zero sardines okay. uh, today. But it, it it's another stump town blend. Um, it's the Founders blend. With notes of um, candied and milk chocolate. So oh. I, now <clears throat> I don't know about you guys. I love coffee and I love good coffee. And I can definitely tell the difference between a good cup and a bad cup. But I've never been able to master. Whenever I'm drinking it, I, I look, I read the label. It says that it's got these notes. I've never been able to master that. I, I just taste good coffee. Are you guys the same? Or are you guys?
1: Yeah, I wish <laughs> that my palate was that sensitive and you would think. That after as much coffee as I have drank through the years through various forms, that I could have a discerning palate. But, uh, yeah, well, I can tell the difference between a good cup of coffee and a bad cup of coffee. But when people are like, ah, it's hints of lavender and the honeydew from Mount Hermon, you know, I'm I'm completely at a loss. Now, now, but Jacob, for you, a good cup of coffee is uh, is a K-cup. Yeah. Wow. Is anything, a a Dunkin' Donuts K-cup. warm and hot <laughs> and
0: uh, gets Do you have me a- going.
1: Are you drinking a bang this morning? I wish I drank a bang yesterday. I'm I'm drinking Starbucks uh, coffee this morning in oh, yeah. my okay. Springs Church of Christ. You
0: know, Starbucks gets a bad rap, but I I got to be honest, I actually like Starbucks. Um, I I, I actually really enjoy it. And Starbucks, you, we have to owe if there's any kind of coffee scene in the in the United States. It's owed
1: to Starbucks. I don't
0: that know if you guys
2: knew that. You got to give them that. Well,
0: I, I like them. I'm not a
1: huge fan of their like basic blend, like Pike Place, but other than that, you know, they're pretty good. Um, if you get there
0: before ten or eleven, you can get their blonde roast. It's way better than uh, the their whatever they just give you when you order it. Unfortunately, yeah,
2: and, the the politics of it, like, it, it's always <clears throat> people with really bad politics that make really good coffee. So it's just the unfortunate reality of Seattle, it. Seattle. Yeah. Yep. What yep. is the deal?
0: I so guess speak, it's people so, that are just sitting around, just thinking about <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> not not connected. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, you know, you know who hated coffee was Marcion. You know, he he probably. hated
0: coffee. Oh uh, so, well, he probably
1: did. I, One of my
0: professors <laughs> used to say that coffee uh, was just like sin because it smells so good but tastes so bad. <laughs> <laughs> that, can you, Jack? Can you guess who said that? Ah. Uh,
2: would that be Bob Turner? Nope. No. No. No, but but I don't think Bob drinks coffee. It was yeah. Wayne Burger. Okay, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Fair mm. Valley's yep. Wayne Burger. Uh, nope. All right, so let's get into Marcion, who apparently hated coffee, uh, in addition to being wrong about a bunch of other things. Um, yes. If you couldn't tell from uh, Daniel's open there, not highly thought of. Uh, generally, when you hear him discussed, it's Marcion the heretic, because he was a heretic. And the the nature of his heresy is what we want to talk about today, because you think, okay, this was 1 one or 200 AD, long time ago, we've outgrown that, we're past that. Not really, unfortunately. And so, uh, give us a little bit. I know we've, we've all kind of looked him over, read what we could here and there uh, to prep, but Daniel, give us what you got on Marcion.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> um, Marcion was... Um, a wealthy man. And if you if you listened in that intro, um, you know, Tertullian was talking about how barbarous this region on the Black Sea, which is modern day Turkey, um, is and or or was. And Marcion came from that region. He came from a town called Pontus. I believe that it's even mentioned in the New Testament um, on a few different occasions. But Marcion was a wealthy man from there. Maybe it was the son of um, a bishop. He was um, a, a Maritimer. He was uh, had a, a wealthy um, occupation doing something on the sea. And sometime later in his life, so he was born actually in 85 AD, um, died around 160. And sometime in the last 20 years, um, 20, 30 years, he went over to Rome actually, and became a part of the Christian church in Rome. And, um, I, I don't know what his religious, um, t- take was prior to that point, but he became a historic Christian, but sometime later broke off from that church and started to teach as he was reading both the old and the new Testament. He started to teach that the God of the old Testament is actually a different God than the God of the new Testament. So he, he literally posited that there are two gods and both of those gods had a Christ. And one of the gods, as, as you can imagine, was the God of the old Testament. He said that he was uh, vindictive and um, cold and kind of a war type. And he was, yeah. He, he was the God that, cr- that created um, uh, this physical world and that had all of the laws over this physical world. But he said that Jesus came. And Jesus actually came from another God. This was his teaching and that when Jesus came, he really abolished and destroyed essentially um, the former God. And so there was a complete detachment from the Old Testament, which which, which leads into something. The other day in our, uh, in our text group, um, Jack sent a quote from, I believe it was Andy Stanley. Uh, Jack, do you remember exactly
2: how that quote went? Uh, let's see. I've got it here. He had the famous sermon a few years ago on unhitching from the Old Testament, right? And, <clears throat> and the point of it was you've got a lot of atheists. You got a lot of people who are, are doubting their faith. A lot of young people who look at the Old Testament, they look at the flood, they look at the genocide of Canaan. They look at, you know, things like that and think, man, God was really mean in the Old Testament. And I, can I believe in a God like that? And I think Jacob's talked about, uh, the deconstruction stories and Rhett and Link and things like that of how could I worship a God who did this? And Andy Stanley looks at that and says, well, what we need to do is unhitch from the Old Testament. I want to read uh, what he said in, in the famous sermon that kind of went viral for all the wrong reasons. And it, In classic form, it went viral and he said, well, you need to listen to the whole thing. People are taking it out of context. You don't just get to say we, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament, uh, number one, but number two, here's a little context. The gospel of Jesus, says Stanley near his sermon's climax, is completely detached from everything that came before. uh, Summarizing that gospel, uh, this is in a a First Things article about it. Summarizing that gospel, he says that God has done something through the Jews for the world, and then he drops this bombshell. But the through the Jews part of the story is over, and now something new and better and inclusive has come. (laughs) I I mean, so much bad doctrine in, in one sentence there. Um, but this idea that, well, the old Testament, that's, that's a little yucky. That's a little harsh. That's a little strong. And so let's just preach Jesus. Let's just preach the gospel. Let's just, you know, avoid that stuff. And so he's not going all the way to Marcion and saying it's a different God, but in practice, they do the same thing. Let's just chuck the old Testament in the trash and move on.
0: Yeah. I think we've called, we've coined this, uh, or maybe it was you, or maybe it was a collection of us marcionism light this is this is the new modern it's 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 practically coming out in the same way because there's what it is at its root is there's some kind of shame when reading the the old testament story something shameful about it says that can't possibly that can't possibly be good that can't possibly be the same god and so um we're going to as stanley says on hitch, I wonder what Jesus would say when he said that uh, Jesus' teachings were completely separate. I don't remember exactly how you said it. Completely um, detached from uh, the Old Testament story.
2: Um, I wonder, remember, there's a certain passage. I feel that Jesus said, "I didn't well, come to destroy." At least the law Marcion was more honest about it, where he he looked at it and he said. Okay, not only does the Old Testament not count, any New Testament book that leans heavily on the Old Testament, I don't, I don't like that either. So he cast out three yeah, of the so four so you have Gospels. the Marcionite canon. Right, yeah. And so yeah. He, he started you know, kind of taking a Bible, uh, the equivalent of a Bible, and ripping out, I don't like this book, I don't like that book, I don't like the other book. Andy Stanley and, and this new wave to really be soft on the Old Testament, they're not giving up the New Testament in the way that they should, because, right. I mean... You guys have preached on Romans, on Hebrews, on Galatians, on really every book in the New Testament. I mean, it's just totally built on the Old Testament. You can't get away from it. You can't move yeah. on from it. There's
0: no there's no context at all. Mar- Marcion believed that Paul was the only true apostle, <clears throat> which is interesting. Um, so he did he did keep Romans in his in his canon. Um, he believed Luke,
1: well. Luke was his gospel. Luke was his gospel without the infancy narratives.
0: Exactly. He threw out the stuff that was that would have bound it and tied it to the Old Testament. Tertullian said so Marcion didn't really come up with anything unique. He just took parts of scripture and Tertullian said that Marcion expressly and openly used the knife, not the pen since he made such an excision of the scriptures as suited his own subject matter. So again, this is the same kind of thing today where whenever you see something inconvenient or that is disagreeable or unpopular, we just we just chuck it.
1: Well, you also see influences of Gnosticism within Marcion. So because of I mean, the implications of his doctrine are essentially that. And you mentioned this, you know, that the Old Testament God created the present material world, and therefore Marcion rejected the bodily resurrection. Um, he rege- and you see this within Tertullian's critique. He rejected marriage, right? He would actually only baptize the unmarried. Um, in fact, you know, Paul, I think, kind of um, ironically, you know, his promotion of Paul, but Paul kind of predicted this, right? In First Timothy four and verse three, within the early heresies, they would forbid marriage. That's exactly what Marcion would do. So anything that was connected to the Old Testament. So, you know, it wasn't simply his doctrine, but the implications of it, the influences from Gnosticism. Um, And I think, you know, again, connecting that to our present day, whatever you reject the Old Testament God, there's going to be implications to that. And I think we don't have to get into this today, but I do think in some ways it implies a necessity of reinterpreting the cross and what atonement means, for example. Um, because there's essentially in many circles today a rejection of any, con- you know, the expiation of sin, uh, mm. guilt. I was just reading in preparation. I was reading uh, William Lane Craig's new book on the atonement, which is good. Um, but he was talking about in there how much atonement theories today focus on more so on you know the conscious shame Cons- of the individual rather sure. than you know our guilt before God. Well, I I right. tend to think that that is the implication of. A rejection of any Old Testament concept of expiation of sin with an atonement and our guilt before God and propitiation and satisfying of the divine wrath.
2: You got something else there. I'm going to go back where you mentioned the Gnostic part. I've heard it taught in the church and and grew up hearing this from time to time. The Old Testament was physical and the New Testament is spiritual. Hmm and yeah there there's some things of the physical requirements that were dropped you know the ceremonial uncleanness and and the clean and unclean animals things like that sure you know the sacrificial system but there's a sacrificial system in the new testament number one number two there's the physical still matters and and we see things like that where you know uh, it talks about the elders going and anointing the sick with oil and we're like well I didn't really mean that. And and <laughs> so, you know, we just throw out the physical because it doesn't fit that physical spiritual paradigm. And so right. we we take on the gnosticism that comes with rejecting the Old Testament. And then like you say the the guilt and the punishment and how much have we talked about on this this podcast already halfway through the season, Genesis 1 through 3. How much is sourced in in those few chapters and you know, the need for atonement is is in there, but so many other things and these churches that go for theological minimalism, just preach the gospel, just love people, just, you know, stick to those things. It's people who refuse to acknowledge the old Testament, who will not mind the depths of the old Testament because it's so rich with those things that God has established of how life on earth is supposed to work.
1: Well, the, the biggest contrast within scripture is not the difference between physical and spiritual. The different, the biggest contrast is between what is natural and what is spiritual. So, you know, physicality isn't the contrast. It's what is natural in this in the sense um, it, natural, not in the sense of according to God's nature, but that which is devoid of the spirit. So according to human <clears throat> wisdom, right. according to human reasoning. So right. if something is spiritual, it doesn't mean that it's non-material. If something is spiritual, it means it's born of the spirit. So we right. call the Bible a spiritual <clears throat> book, even though it's a physical thing, right? right? So we call it a spiritual book because it came from the spirit and yeah. you see that contrast in first Corinthians two between the natural person and the spiritual person. And I think that was Marcion and also our fault as well Is it's not a matter of, okay, is it physical or not, but is it governed and given and offered by the spirit? Right. Yeah. W- what is the thing that Jesus hit
0: on? And you see this later in toward the end of his ministry when he's talking with the Jews was he said, you guys tithe mint and dill and cumin um, but you've neglected the weightier matters, namely justice, mercy, faithfulness. And I think some people read that and they take that to mean, see, Jesus is saying the physical stuff doesn't matter. Jesus said you neglected the weightier matters, and you, you know you basically strained out a gnat and you swallowed a camel. And He said, but the fact is, you should have done both. You should have done the. You should have obeyed the commands of God, but it should have been born from a proper heart. If the if your spirituality. Doesn't work out naturally into the way that you live, and what is happening on a physical level, then it isn't spiritual at all. It's really impotent, and Jesus was not against physical. He was saying, if all you are is physical, and there is no heart, and it isn't born and wrought from a pro- from a proper, uh, a proper spirit and a proper uh, true allegiance and and uh, pure religion, then it's
2: uh, it's worthless. But that's that's a good um jack i want to add a couple more things on on the practical (laughs) implications that come from this you know that it is rejection of penal substitutionary atonement it's you know the just preach the gospel thing it it leaves out a lot of those physical things like what a man and a woman is we did the episode on that um Mm -hmm. so many of those things but when you have that question and people get real real nervous about the purging of canaan they get real nervous about chopping goliath's head off they get real nervous about the flood and things like that and so it affects your political view of the world right Mm -hmm. uh and you get this brian zond type you know jesus was just here and and christians are just here to get killed over and over and over and that's what god wants you know his constant persecution Mm is you know the lowly way god doesn't want righteous people ruling ever, and you just look at what happened to Israel when righteous people did rule and when they didn't rule, but not just Israel. In the Old Testament, you have Nineveh and their repentance and their destruction. You've got Babylon, you've got Nebuchadnezzar, and you've got Pharaoh in and, and the Joseph narrative and in the Moses narrative and, you know, what <clears throat> God demands of rulers, and you think about how much of, of Western civilization is built on Mosaic principles, right. and... Our understanding of—I uh, had a friend. You know, I, was, I was putting the question to people. What, what do you think are the practical implications? He says, "Look how many economic principles the Law of Moses gives us." And man, you you just see this outright socialism, uh, you know, that's being advocated by some Christians today, because mm-hmm. they don't pay attention to, to this stuff. And so, right. you know, there's there's a generosity and a care for the poor and and charitable, you know, giving and all that that's part of it, and theft and things like that that are part of it. And so. Ultimately, it's all of the real-world stuff that matters day-to-day life, Uh, all of the the things that govern how you live outside of the church building. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament is full of principles, and when you get away from those, when you pretend they don't matter, and, uh, you know, it's always interesting to me when I was a kid, you know, I'd get those little miniature Bibles that had the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. Yeah. And I think that's like all the Old Testament some people will take is the Psalms and the Proverbs. And it's like, you know what? Even in the Psalms, you've got some imprecatory Psalms. And some right. some people are like, those are bad. We shouldn't, the, we got to stay away from those. If you can't justify how the imprecatory Psalms fit with Jesus, you, you're you you're a soft Marcionite. And, mm-hmm. and so you've got to figure out how all this fits together. And I think that's what we're going to get to is how should we use the Old Testament? Yeah. Do you... Do you guys see, kind of, you
0: know, these big ideas, I think we see them working out all the time on a big theological scale. And you see them in preaching, you see them in teaching, you see them from the Christian philosophy. How are you all seeing this working out just on on the street when you're just talking to a brother or a sister or just your average, um, you know, maybe church going or even non-church going so-called Christian? How do you see them expressing some of these Marcionite um, tendencies?
1: Well, I think probably, I don't know if this is a direct ramification of this, but, and it kind of goes back to what Jack is saying is kind of this privatization, personal relationship with Christ kind of Christianity that is so, you know, focused on the, Personal relationship and has no expansive view of of the Christian faith, uh, meaning that you know as you see within the Mosaic Law, the covenant, the covenant meant uh, all of life under the will of God, and that was economically, sexually, um, you know, any any type of area of life. There is some law uh, that you see within the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And of christ of course Christ was the fulfillment of that and he was the embodiment of that he lived the law perfectly right and um which by the way you have some implications you know if you <clears throat> reject the law you really cannot understand the nature of Christ because he came as the perfect embodiment of the law and so um, i I think that you have individuals who believe well i You know, I come to worship on Sunday, and uh, anything that the New Testament says about worship, singing, Lord's Supper—yes, that's dictated by the New Testament. But outside of that, you know, I God has kind of given me the liberty and freedom to live how I want, to think how I want, Hmm. to engage politically the way that I want. And they forget that to be in covenant with God, as we see within the Mosaic Law means that your entire life is dictated by the will of God. And how we, you know, as Christians, how we go about interpreting the law is different because Christ is the new, what I like to say is Christ is the new arbiter of the law. Yeah. You know, for example, in Mark 7, 19, you see him declaring all foods clean, Mark says. Um, so we interpret the law through Christ. Um, but I think that there is a, just a very, shallow view of god yeah a very shallow view of god and um there's a lack of a lack of reverence i mean i don't know about you guys but the more time i've spent in the old testament i've been reading through jeremiah now i'm reading through <clears throat> you know numbers i'm reading through the torah um man you you walk away from those books trembling like i mean i, I mean yeah. you just you just there's just just this rec- recognition of like man I I am not God. And and no. God is holy and there are times where God does things that disturb me and yeah. they 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 frighten me. I mean, you know, there are you know, I was just reading through numbers yesterday when Dathan and Abiram, you know, convinced the congregation to go against Moses and Aaron mm-hmm. and God God tells Moses and Aaron stand back because mm-hmm. i'm about to consume all of them right and moses i mean he and when he says all of them he literally means all of them like right. the entire israelite nation and moses has to plead again and and work as a high priest uh, essentially uh, or a mediator rather for for the behalf of the children of israel and then you know after that God, they they still the people of Israel, you know, see what happens, and they're afraid for a little bit, but then they come back and they rebel again, and God says, it's funny because the interaction there, Moses and God, and God says, uh, you know, essentially, you know, stand back again because I'm going to consume them, and Moses immediately tells Aaron, go get your censor now. You don't even see in that instance. You don't even see Moses pleading with God for the people because he knows that God's already struck out. And he tells Aaron, he says, go get your censor now because plague is spreading throughout the camp. Mm -hmm. And by the time Aaron gets there, thousands of people are already dead. Well, think about because Marcion would say he'd say, see, that's evil.
0: That's um, that's that is the Old Testament God. But we're talking about how that God is the same God. We see the same thing being played out even in the New Testament. And when you're talking about a God who would consume his people, it just brings me to Hebrews, uh, what, chapter 12, where mm-hmm. he he says, <clears throat> look, those people went before the mountain when God was giving his covenant to the people. And when they were saying, I agree, they were trembling. The mountain was quaking. There was uh, thunder and flashes of lightning. And it was a terrifying scene. People didn't even want to come close to it. How terrifying it was to be in the presence of the living God. And then the Hebrew writer says, let us, therefore, speaking to Christians, he's saying, look, we're not under that uh, that covenant any longer. We're now under the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. But he's speaking to Christians. He says, because of that, because that's the God we serve, let us, therefore, draw near with reverence or let us worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Right. He's, he's not a different God. He's the same exact God. And in the New Testament, we're learning what a proper heart and a proper uh, worship is, um, which comes from the heart, but, it, but it's based on
1: those stories. I mean, it's,
0: that's two-thirds there, of our is, Bible. Hebrews-
1: yeah and, and that to me that is a great example of how the hebrews writer interprets and connects the old testament to the new testament right how the how hebrews goes about understanding the old testament interpreting it and how he understands the old testament and the new covenant the old covenant new covenant coming together is that this is the same hebrews 10 and verse 31 our god is a consuming fire so right. you know you see within hebrews these probably i would say some of the more terrifying verses about god are found within the book of hebrews but at the same time you have some of the most encouraging uh stuff within the the book of hebrews as well and i think he you know he connects these like "Listen, our god is a consuming fire but he is gracious and merciful he's given the one-time sacrifice for all time hebrews 10 and verse 14 so and uh so you see that there i guess for me The way, you can go back to your question a while back about like how do you see this within the church? I just think you see a very shallow, commercialized view of God. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you take the Old Testament, the panoramic of the Old and New Testament, you see this very awe-inspiring, uh, fear-inducing, uh, mysterious uh, God who yeah. is outside of your control and yet deeply Worthy of worship, uh worthy of my life, and it it, it puts this whole new Deep. idea. Up. and I, And I remember, there's one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite quotes from, uh, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe with C.S. Lewis. Right, is when Mister Beaver, the kids ask, you know, about Aslan, and they said, well, you know, he's a lion. Is he safe? And Mister Beaver says, safe. He's a lot. Li- of course not. He's a lion, mm-hmm. but he is good. Right. Yeah. Right. Man, that's I, awesome. I, I, like, I had you to have up, no understanding of that good but unsafe God. You know, I had to pull up the
2: uh, Brian Zahn. Do you guys familiar with him? I no. am. Oh, no. one of the worst theologians in the world today. And <laughs> very much the, the soft... Uh, well, I'll just read one of his quotes. God is not wrath, though we may rightly understand and describe the consequences of divine consent to our own self-destructive will as the wrath of God... The truth remains that God is not wrath. God is love. It's that view that God doesn't punish anybody. He just lets you choose your own thing. And then going on, he says, God is not a killer. God is not violence. Like, what what was the flood? I mean, like you have to, and to Jacob's point about Hebrews, that it's very much carrot and stick of this is a God who's capable of this, and this is what you deserve. And so you need to understand that side of God. And that's what makes the love side of God so much more powerful is that he gave you a way out of it. He paid right. with his own blood to give you a way out of it. But it, this idea that, oh, God, he doesn't want to punish anybody. He just lets you choose your own punishment. You choose your own. No, that the, no, that you're, is so divorced from the Old Testament. This is something that I don't remember.
0: And maybe this is because, you know, I, I really started studying theology within the past decade or a little more than a decade. But this seems to be pretty trendy right now is this idea that. God does not send anybody to hell. Hell is is an existent place, but God doesn't send anybody there. God it, it, it's really just what happens when somebody chooses to not go with God. And you know God, you read in Jude that God created this place for the angels that didn't stay within their natural boundaries. Jesus, speaking about this place that he's going to send. He's going to send out his angels to separate the good from the bad and to, to send the the rebellious to a, a place of uh, fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And <clears throat> today, I just, I hear this all the time. Hell is not something God created. It's just a place where God doesn't, where God isn't. And it's because people choose to go where God isn't. No, there's, there is punishment, and there will be God sending them there. And it is a place God created um, for those that are
2: rebellious. Imagine, well, I mean, you see people just rejecting, I mean, just retching against uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, one of the most famous sermons of all time, right? And man, it it is heavy. It is is really strong. Jonathan Edwards of you are deserving of the wrath of god you're deserving of hell you're deserving of punishment you're deserving of all these things and and hellfire and brimstone preaching you've seen a total rejection of that and and right. you know it's it's one of those things that if you do that every single sunday yeah you're not balanced you're not getting the gospel right and and i i understand a lot of people are driven away by a no grace gospel and that's bad but swinging the pendulum the other way and saying there's but that no wasn't fear. Jonathan
1: Edwards. Yeah, no,
2: no, exactly. He had that, but you you need a sinners in the hands of an angry God thing. And it goes to our, our sin episode. He, Ephesians tells us you were enemies of God, destined for wrath, you know, children of mm-hmm. wrath. And, and so 5. like, yeah, this is part of what you deserve. And so yeah. you have <clears throat> to understand that. And when you, you reject sinners in the hands of an angry God as a concept, oh, he's not an angry God. He, he opened the ground and swallowed people up. He killed everybody gospel, but eight people. Uh, he, I mean, he struck people dead, right, just on the spot in the Old and New Testament. I mean, that's the thing that's so funny is you have to pretend Revelation doesn't happen, pretend Ananias and Sapphira didn't happen, pretend you know uh, Herod in, in Acts twelve, the voice of a God. I mean, like,
0: <laughs>
2: well, man,
0: the gospel does not have a proper context apart from the wrath and the condemnation from God. This is what Paul. You know, if we want to, I think most people would agree that Romans 1, 16 to 17 is not only the thesis of Romans, but essentially the thesis of the entire new covenant. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. But just after that, Paul goes on to say in 1, 18, now the wrath of God is revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And Paul's speaking in present terms about that. The wrath of God is presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the gospel is is the, the antidote to it. The gospel the way, is the I thing that says there's righteousness that's available. But just before you, you go there, Jacob, to connect this, even on a physical level, you get over to Romans 13, where, you know, in Romans 12, Paul's saying, uh, Christians, do not avenge yourselves. Um, and why does he say it? Because he said, vengeance is mine. And then in chapter 13, he says, look, the governing authorities, God set them up on earth right now to be his, um, his vindicator, to be his, uh, the, the carrier out of his wrath even right now on a physical level, which is, which is a prejudgment before the final judgment. So all through the New Testament, even within the, the greatest book, I believe Romans, about the gospel, you have, it's built on, look, the alternative is wrath of God, which is a, an existent reality because of your sins. But uh, I, I think you said it exactly right. This is what showcases the love of God more profoundly than anything else is while we were enemies he reconciled us to himself by the death of his son and um
1: yeah so sorry jacob go ahead well i was just saying like i wouldn't want to worship a god who doesn't have wrath like because that would mean a god who doesn't care about justice right a god who doesn't care about the evil that's going on in the world
2: a god who like, look at the holocaust and be like yeah that that's fine
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I want God to be angry about that. Um, now, I realize that that also means that God's angry about my sin. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the beauty of the gospel is that that is his judicial outpouring of his wrath is satisfied within the cross of Christ. And, um, you know, but but the but the point being is that if God is not judicially uh, angry at these, I mean, who, who would who would? praise a judge who did not, you know, instill justice onto crime and, and evil and, and suffering in the world. Um, we should want God to be upset about that, if you will, and to pour out his justice upon those evils in the world. So again, yes. I, I think that this really has to do with, and you see, and you see, by the way, That depiction, this holistic picture that we're talking about God, you see that whenever he reveals himself to Moses, right, in Exodus chapter 34. I mean, to me, that is, you know, when God declares his name to Moses and he lets Moses know, you know, who he is, he lets him know that he is a God who is, you know, gracious and he is full of long-suffering. Um, Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that's the gospel, right? Like that's what we want to talk about, forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he says in verse uh, 6 that he is the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children their children That is that is the holistic picture right of who God is and it's interesting there that he calls himself slow to anger like And you see that right within the Israelites. I mean, they are a stiff-necked people, and God keeps giving them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. Like we don't see our sin properly. Like how you know, but God does. God is consciously aware of all of our wickedness, and yet He doesn't fly off the handle and strike me dead immediately when I sin. He is He is patient, waiting. So so Paul says
0: these old testament scriptures, they are. A guide. They are a pedagogue. They are a tutor. They are intended to bring you along in the right direction. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, after he told him, you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures since your youth. And then he says, all of those scriptures are inspired by God. He's, so he's writing now under the new covenant, writing of the old, what we would call old Testament scriptures, which I want to say something about that in just a moment. But, um, Writing about all of those the prior revelations Genesis to Malachi, and he says these are able to make you wise unto salvation. They are profitable for teaching, for correction, for for re- re- rebuking. So that's that's two thirds of our Bible, right? I, I, somewhere somewhere around there, maybe maybe two thirds, maybe between two thirds and three fourths of the Bible are these Old Testament scriptures. It was the Bible of the first century church too. <laughs> exactly. So let me ask you this, is it wrong then? And, you know, I, I think we would all agree here. Is it wrong to identify ourselves as New Testament Christians? Is that a, is that a, uh, and, and and maybe I'll, I'll I'll tell you what I'm thinking when I say that, first of all, hold on
2: so you said is that a and then it froze for a second. Just oh, did out. I cut out for
0: a second? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, concerning the uh, the state, the New Testament Christians, which which we hear this all the time. I'm a New Testament Christian. Is that a misnomer, or is that is that a poor way of describing what we are? And the reason I ask that is our our Bibles are divided up uh, between Old Testament and new testament i'm not sure if i if i agree with that breakdown because it it implies by old it implies that that's that testament is old you know irrelevant um, that was and, and so now we've got the new testament and you'll even hear christians say we're new, we're new testament christians so why are you reading out of the old testament why are you preaching out of the old testament and I, and i think that people misunderstand that there is a, a proper way of looking at the Bible is that there were two primary covenants, which is not the same thing as a testament. Right. Um, the testaments remain in a, remain valuable forever. Jesus said, I I, I didn't come to destroy um, the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Not a jot or a tittle will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Um, there are two primary covenants. There's a covenant with the Jews and there was a covenant with, uh um anyone who would come into Jesus Christ Jeremiah prophesied about it and the hebrew writer that's how he connects the old the old covenant to the new covenant there will be a new covenant uh declares the lord but just because we're under a new covenant it doesn't mean that the uh, the first testament or the original section of um scriptures is uh is old well,
1: i so i I don't mind the old and new contrast I I think that comes from like Hebrews 8 where he talks about the old becoming obsolete. Uh, but but
0: rough. that's not but that's not what I'm saying is the thing I guess maybe I didn't make it very clear he's talking about the old covenant not yeah, yeah. W- when we say old testament a testament is just a statement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When when you say old testament well that was that's a testament of old we, we're not under that anymore. You see what I'm saying? There's a distinction between yeah. a testament and a covenant, and I think
1: the Hebrew writer does. He say, I guess, I guess, because the covenant implies a testament, though, right? Because the covenant is tied to the law. It's, it's two different things, right? But, but coming covenant, but then if you a, come if into the a test
0: law. if if the testament or if the statement itself was mm-hmm. being obsolete, then that that then we can say, look, we don't need that first part of the Bible anymore. Yeah, I think what he's saying is the first covenant became obsolete.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that's important in this is you look in the Old Testament, things changed. Things changed from the the system that was in the Garden of Eden, that changed, right. the the system that, you know, the patriarchal, but then there was a change post-flood that led really all the way up to the Mosaic Law, but even in the Mosaic Law, the the Tabernacle to Temple change brought about some changes and uh, you know, then with captivity there were changes, there were priesthood changes even in that and and so there were minor changes and of course in Jesus you have a major change, but the story continues throughout. The other thing, we use this term today, Judeo-Christian. That's not really a thing because the, it's, and that kind of gets to the Stanley thing about that, oh, that Jewish stuff, it doesn't matter anymore. That was cut off. Basically, God changed train tracks. No, he didn't. He grafted in to the family of Abraham, all of us who are Gentiles in Christ. And so, and this is kind of what Hebrews 11 is telling us is Moses was a Christian Abraham was a Christian. David was a Christian. Now you say, how are they a Christian before Christ? Because their faith was in the Christ who was to come. Their faith right. was in the promises God had made. And so they were part of the same stream as us. There was just, you know, the changes that God made in the stream away. And, of course, Jesus being that that focal point uh, that was the great change that, that brings in the Gentiles that to all nations and all these things. in the Jeremiah 31, the new covenant... Um, but but the storyline is the same. And so I, I think to yeah. your point, Daniel, I get, I get what you're both are saying, you know, is that there was a major change and the old was done away with and we can't go back to the old. But it still was right. in this same stream of that right. uh, goes back to the garden and the, the crushing of the serpent uh, is, is all that one story. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss is that it is one story that the story of the jewish people you know we would sing that you know as kids bible class or vbs or whatever father abraham had many sons and i'm one of them so are you and as a kid i was always like well that's weird but i'm i'm not i'm not jewish you know i'm scottish I'm american Mm -hmm. i'm just this lineage or whatever but it really is and i think we don't think of ourselves that way and i think we still you know because there are ethnic jews in the world today they tell us it's very anti-semitic to say that you know, we're kind of the people of God who replace them, but that's what Paul's right. saying is, right. you know, we Romans were brought A. in in Romans, in Romans 9, 10, 11, Romans 2 of those who are Jews are Jews of the heart kind of thing. And so yeah. I think that really gets missed and, and under discussed as part of this as well. And so I, I get the, the use of New Testament Christians, but I also get the idea of maybe moving away from that of just biblical
0: Right, it, it's it's semantics ultimately, and I think somebody could say, and I've and I'm sure many have said it, in a way that they mean it in the proper sense. What I'm what I'm saying is, I just am seeing a, a, a continual almost rejection of or devaluing of the what we would call the Old Testament, um, and and I just don't know if I see that. If I see it, I, th- I think God has one revelation and it has been uh,
1: kind of continuously unfolded from the well, beginning. I don't like the phrase New Testament Christian just because I think it's silly. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's an intentional way of, of trying to separate ourselves from other interpretations of Christianity. But, you know, yeah. we've always said, you know, just using biblical terminology. You know, we're just, we're just Christians. We're just believers. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're disciples. I don't say I'm a New Testament disciple. You know, right. I mean, so I just, but I, I think that within, you do see um, both a continuation and a discontinuation. You see, well, interestingly, there's, there's times where Paul, for example, in First Corinthians, Will say uh, like in fourteen when he's talking about the silence of, of women within the churches he says as the law also says you right. know um, and he will he will use the law in a more authoritative way than we sometimes do yeah. um, and he doesn't he doesn't view the law as the proper prescription for um, you know, Gentiles or anything like that. I mean, I think you see that within the Jerusalem council that things have, you know, shifted, particularly with Gentiles. Now the whole question is, is whether or not it still continues for the Jews uh, as far as some of those, those ceremonial things. But ultimately the law is not our means of justification, but it is authoritative in the sense that it is the foundation by which christian revelation is understood and interpreted and we as christians don't reject the law we interpret the law through christ Mm -hmm. we're given a new understanding of god's will with as we see the law through the fulfillment of christ but it is still authoritative in the sense that it gives to us god's desires and will for humanity and specific for, for example like when you look at the book of proverbs this is what's interesting to me we treat pro- the book of proverbs in my opinion differently than any other book in the church because how many sermons have you heard where proverbs are quoted authoritatively like so you know i found um most of the time growing up in the church I was like well it's only authoritative if it's repeated in the new testament I don't know if you guys have ever like heard that before, but essentially, if it's repeated in the New Testament, it's something we're under as Christians. But then I would hear tons of sermons that quote proverbs that are not at all quoted within the New Testament, and they were viewed as authoritative. So I find that interesting. But so the wisdom literature is almost viewed as more authoritative in some ways. With yeah, the wisdom and the the salt and the now I do think poetry. Yeah, and so I do think that. Um, The Old Testament expands our understanding of some of the things that Paul in the New Testament will just kind of quickly say that we don't have maybe a full understanding of, you know, what he means by certain things. You know, what what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Mm. Okay, so that's the command. Love your neighbor as yourself.
0: Right.
1: Well, what does that mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, going back to what Jack was saying earlier, it means honoring property rights it means um, giving due process right. it means not bearing false witness it means you know not coveting after these things and that th- so like and what we, we
0: say god doesn't care would we say god he doesn't care about the particulars anymore that's he, what, that's he, what i'm saying it, i think it we're just, just
1: saying like these generic commands love your neighbor okay but what is that in, your heart, mean? What does that look in the like? way you feel in the way you feel right exactly that, that that's what it is and and again
0: what we were saying earlier is if it doesn't bear out in practice, it means absolutely nothing. And the, the Old mm-hmm. Testament gives a lot of the particulars on what the practice is. And I, I think one of the things also is there's this there's a general misunderstanding of what it means to be in Christ. We're not under a system of law as our means of justification, but that does not mean that we are not under a law. Otherwise, what is the basis of sin? Paul says, apart from law, there is no sin. Mm -hmm. So if a Christian concedes that he sins, you got to understand you're sinning against the law. It's just that in Jesus Christ, my justification isn't by my perfect keeping of the law. My justification is by Christ's perfect keeping and my faith in Jesus Christ. The thing that interests me is in, um, I'm right now currently uh, for those that are interested, I'm 80 weeks into a sermon series through Romans. So we're we're in Romans 8, and when I told the church a few years ago or a couple years ago that I was going to preach Romans for at least three years, there was a an, uh, um, a roaring laughter across the audience, and I think people are starting to take me seriously that that is what I'm doing. In we we we're in Romans 8 right now, and listen to this, he says. In Romans 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, this is a contrast of the law that would condemn you versus this law that comes by way of the spirit. But he says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then notice this who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the way we live and the way that we walk and what he goes on to say, the way, even that we think and that we are to think about things is based in the spirit of God. That's what that is. What is that's our standard now is the law of the spirit. So it's, it's not like we're not under or that there is no law that guides us. There absolutely is. It's just that we're not under the law as a means of justification.
1: Is that right? Yeah, right. No, I, I agree. That's why I'm saying like, you know, you see Jesus as the new, arbiter of the law i mean he jesus intentionally sets himself up as the new law giver within the sermon on the mount matthew 5 through 7 he's on a mountain giving law i mean it's like where have we seen this before oh yeah uh, moses right and it's like yeah. but instead of bringing tablets down from the mountain that he was given he is speaking it authoritatively and you'll even get some
0: i've i've even heard some especially within the marriage divorce and remarriage debate say that, see, Matthew 5 through 7 was, was under the Old Covenant. Yes, I've it heard was, the same it thing. Was, it was only to the Jews. And, and so they'll even go so far as to say that that sermon doesn't have any binding uh, nature on Christians today. Marcionite much? I yeah. mean, that is
1: heresy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, well, th- there is no other word for that than heresy.
0: Yeah, what did Jesus mean? Go and teach them everything that I have commanded you.
1: <laughs> right. It's just I mean, so It's just so mind-boggling. It, do you guys think that some of that – I know we're coming uh, probably to the end of our time or close to the end of our time, but do you guys think that some of this has to do with, at least within the churches of Christ, our emphasis on, like, the book of Acts and everything after that and a failure to spend more time in the Gospels? Like, growing up in the church, we didn't spend a whole lot of time in the Gospels. We spent more time in the book of Acts and everything after that. Right. Um, I can only speak from my own experience. I know that that's anecdotal, but yeah, um, but well, I don't remember spending a ton of time in the Gospels.
2: And at that, a failure to understand how much the Gospels are built on the old law. I think we really look at when Jesus says, you know, uh, I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill, and, and that he fulfilled the law, and it's like, okay, that's done. We put it behind us. Let's move on to the new stuff. But you, what you're getting at there of Jesus giving a new law, you look at the start of Matthew. You've got Jesus is born, goes down into Egypt. Uh, Because there's a wicked king who's killing the male babies... He comes back, uh, you know, across the sea, back out of Egypt. He uh, is right. goes through the water of baptism. He's tempted in the desert by the devil, just like the people of Israel were. He's faithful right. through the temptation, unlike them. He comes to the <laughs> mountain and gives the law. This is all paralleling Exodus perfectly. Yep. And so there's exactly. so many things like that in the Old Testament. And this is the last thing I wanted to, to get to, is the one time we do teach the New Testament is to little kids' Bible classes and uh, vacation Bible school. All right, let's talk about David and Goliath. Let's talk about Daniel and the lion's den. Let's talk about Jonah and the big fish and and all of these stories. And well, here's the moral of the story. Right. There is a moral to those stories, but they're also, I mean, so deeply theologically rich with right. things that God is teaching. us. the story of Jonah, you could spend months in the four chapters of Jonah of what it's saying about the Jew-Gentile relationships, God's view of the world and his call to repentance and what's being done in the world in the the Jew-Gentile thing. And uh, I've got a buddy, shout out to to Joel, has a great thread on Twitter about the parallels between Jonah being sent to Nineveh and preaching Mm -hmm. to the Gentiles and Peter being sent to preach to Cornelius and that which is unclean. and, And the locations, the geography, the details of this say, this is a parallel happening. And here's the right Right. way to do it, the wrong way to do it. And uh, one more, David and Goliath. David goes out to battle against this giant, and and you research the history of the giants and and the the wickedness of the people of Canaan, and you've got, it it just throws this detail in for no reason that he's covered in scale armor, Mm -hmm. serpentine armor. His head is crushed by the seed of Eve and and that lineage of Christ. It's a retelling of the gospel, and the Old Testament is full of things like that. And we get out of that... You can slay your giants, like right. Uh, the right. Story well, so of that's Jesus the question is so of you rise up and
0: and defeat your your uh, your chronic joint pain. Right. <laughs> David killed Goliath.
2: Exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, so, um, man, you threw me off with of that. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So uh, now that's my next sermon series. Like. <laughs> Slay the giant of your arthritis. <laughs> you know, slay the. I mean, I'm not saying ours. Arth- I mean, arthritis does have a part within you know our struggle with sin and the fallen body. But um, so, so going back to the Jonah thing, like that also here's the question of how is that authoritative? Okay, it's it's not authoritative in the sense of well, we're you know c- commanded to uh, be a Jew like Jonah was a Jew, but it is authoritative in the sense of how does God, going back to what you were saying, how does God interact with the world? What kind of God do we worship in relationship? And I was just thinking about this this morning because I'm, I'm going to be starting a series soon on politics and the Christian. What does God expect of pagan leaders? You know, because right. Assyria is outside of Israel. Why is God? I mean, God is calling them to repentance. Okay, so what does it look like when a pagan nation repents? Without okay, it says Assyria. Law. It said Assyria repented. What does that mean? Yeah. At the very minimum, it means some type of policy change within yeah. the highest order because the king repents himself. Yeah. So That's God right. expects for pagan nations to have policy changes which conform to His will that right. are outside of the dictum of the kingdom, right? right. That are outside the 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 uh, direct uh, relationship to the church to the congregation of Israel. He's, and he, so, expects,
0: he expects that they would reward doers of good and punish evildoers, And the whole context of that is built on the law of God.
1: And and God is reigning through Israel over the nations because that is what's happening within Jonah is the law of God is going out from Mount Zion through Jonah. God commissions his prophet to go to the nations to tell them that they are under obligation from their God to repent and turn to him. So my point is is that that greatly shapes how you interpret for example how the christian interacts and how the church interacts with politics in the present day right and right. so it's authoritative in that sense because that is the same god okay and you can't change that he doesn't right. change he is right. unchanging and so you, it, it, it is authoritative in that
0: sense in second yeah exactly uh, again, you know, kind of, I kind of interrupted you there to go into Romans no, go, go. Well, but over in second Timothy or, um, uh, first Timothy chapter two, when he's talking about praying for all those who are in, um, high places, Kings and those kinds of things, he says, pray for them because God wants everybody to be saved and mm-hmm. everybody includes the Kings. And he says, And God wants that so that you would be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, which is godly and dignified in every day or in every way. That's what follows when you have a a godly uh, polity, when the people are being governed by godly leaders. And over in Romans 13, Paul says the same thing. He says, this is why God set them up. It's not the church. It's not the same thing as the eternal kingdom of God but it is connected to it very much in the expectation and really the basis of any judgment God has against nations is going to be based on whether or not they followed and kept to the ordinances and the standards of God. That's what Romans 13 is yeah. is all about.
2: I think this is this brings us full circle is that we it, it, it attacks that idea that everything is spiritualized and the spiritual is the only that matters. The spiritual touches everything else, but the physical is still very real. And the New Testament yeah. is full of dirt and blood and you know, like real life, real world stuff. And because there's less of it in the New Testament, not that there's none, but we can we can just kind of gloss over in the New Testament and say it's all about the spiritual now. It's not. It, it, right? it really is God's rule over all of these things. And here's how he expects people individually, nationally, societally, culturally, all of these things to come to bear. And this, this soft Marcionism that is so present in the church today... Uh, Man, we need to spend more time in the Old Testament. We need to preach and teach from the Old Testament. And again, not just, you know, the the basic moral one one moral lesson of Daniel and the lions, then one moral lesson of the flood or or whatever else. I mean, right. these are deeply theologically rich stories that you can mine the depths of them for weeks getting out all the principles that these teach us. Uh, it it's so powerful and it we are doing ourselves such a disservice. I mean, I've said this before, not probably not on the podcast, but you hold your Bible up, and it's, it's you know, it looks like a thick book, but when you think about the God of the universe over thousands of years, this mm-hmm. is what he has recorded for us, is this book right here. This is it. Right, right. And you're going to take two-thirds of that and go, this doesn't matter. I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to spend any time on this. I'm not really going to give it any credence. I'm going to take two-thirds of the decrees of God himself and right. throw it out and stick to this little thin one-third of it, that's ridiculous. I mean, like, how valuable every word is. And so we have to really, really uh, understand how the Old Testament fits and, and really take the time to to dig into it. Well, Jack, I just
0: want you to know you inspired me. Starting this Sunday, I'm going to start a 200-part series through Leviticus. <laughs> yeah,
2: yes, so absolutely. Get, so get ready. Yes. No. And please no, record but... <laughs> your congregation's reaction to that one. <laughs> uh,
0: but, yeah. but no. But seriously, you're. This is. This goes back to that. Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The man of God today is only equipped for every good work by giving credence to the first two thirds of the revelation of God. We are not under the covenant of the Jews, but there is value that goes far beyond the uh, moralization of stories found in those first two thirds of our bible
2: i'm gonna drop a, a quick book recommendation uh for those that are kind of spit out the bones types I, I, the guy's a presbyterian but it doesn't come through that heavily it's called a house for my name by peter Lighthart. it's mm. a, a survey of the old testament all the stuff i'm talking about where it goes so much deeper than you think it is brilliant uh you it, it's out there you can buy it uh, if you're a canon plus subscriber uh they have it where you can listen to um you just you don't realize how much the Old Testament has, how much symbolism, how much um, typology, how much is pointing to Christ, to the Church, to I mean, I was listening to a sermon the other day about Joshua and the Book of Acts and how they almost perfectly align, uh, you know, the conquest of Canaan versus the the Church going out in conquest over the world. I'm like. Stuff that you just don't see that you—it's—it's uh, right. it's unbelievable. I mean, the Old Testament—we will never get to the bottom of how rich it is, and it's—it's it's just crazy that we let somebody tell us we need to unhitch and we go, oh, okay, you know, well, somebody doesn't like the flood, so I guess we shouldn't talk about that. No, no, no. We we really need to lean into God of the Old Testament as well.
0: Yeah, I think what we want—we want to encourage listeners in this episode is to not have any shame over the God of the Old Testament. He is the same God. Jesus in Matthew 24 spoke in very similar terms. He said to Israel, your house is left to you desolate. And he foretold what was going to happen in AD 70, which is one of the most um, destructive um, annihilations and massacres that's ever happened in history on the Jewish people. And this was literally by the prophetic word of Jesus. This was God's wrath and condemnation coming because Jesus said you would not listen you did not listen when I sent the prophets. And look, that's that was in 80, 70. This is 40 years after the church age began. We we serve and we worship the same God and we need not have any shame when our God who is sovereign calls out for judgment. Um, he He could at any point in time end the world as he did with Noah. He's not gonna do it by water, but he is going to, bring destruction to this world at some point and when god does it he can do it because he's god he's sovereign and <clears throat> i think um uh, that's that's all i have to say jacob
1: i'm with you fellas <laughs> so. There we go where's the clip yeah
2: <laughs> still haven't done that soundboard no, we need um, to... maybe when i stop moving and driving all over the country we'll uh, we'll sit down and figure that one out um all right we'll wrap right there we will be back next week uh, we did take that week off that was kind of our mid season break again uh, i think jacob was on a retreat i was all over the country once again uh, and so we we needed a little bit of a break in there don't but don't call we it were... a
1: retreat it was a workshop
2: a workshop okay. my bad my bad i was at a retreat i was retreating yeah. he was workshop so um <laughs> yes um so, yeah, we, uh, we'll plan on being back for the second <laughs> half of the season each week up until uh, right about the holidays. we'll We'll stop uh, for the holidays and. Uh, So be looking for us every week. Make sure you're subscribed. We've had some really uh, good feedback on the ratings, uh, on especially Apple Podcasts. So thank you to those that are giving us five stars, uh, combating, bringing our numbers back up a little bit from the haters. And so uh, leave us a review. Uh, Give us your feedback. I know we get YouTube comments uh, and we're going to try and keep up with those. And so uh, just uh, we love hearing from you guys and, and hope you're enjoying the show. We'll talk to you next week.